Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space and welcome to episode number 156. I am your host, Mark Shapiro, and my guest in episode 156 is Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. I am delighted to have Dr. Hayhoe on the podcast. She is a climate scientist and a professor at Texas Tech University. She is, simply put, one of the single most important voices on the impacts of climate change and the importance of climate action that we have. She is an expert in every facet of the term. She has been named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. She leverages every platform imaginable to pass this message about the impacts of climate change. I asked her on the show to really go through two specific topics. One of the things that, at least from my perspective, she is extraordinarily gifted at is approaching the conversation around climate change in a way that allows people to feel comfortable, to feel welcome, to feel heard, and then to have an opportunity for dialogue. And then the second thing that she has a level of expertise that we really need to gather and feel motivated and inspired by is her expertise and insights around the very real and very tangible ways that climate change impacts human health. We work through both of those topics in this episode, and this episode is absolutely extraordinary. It's also really timely. She and I recorded this episode on October 18th. Today is October 28th of 2019. I live in Santa Rosa, California, which is in Sonoma County. It's my hometown, and I've been back in my hometown since March of 2016. And we are currently in the grips of another disaster, another wildfire in this region. This is the Kincaid Fire. It's been an extraordinarily difficult, scary, nerve-wracking, tough few days. So before we get to the conversation with Dr. Hayo, I do just want to reflect a little bit on what this Kincaid fire experience has been like. I was in Santa Rosa in October of 2017 when the Tubbs fire hit. We were able to get through that. Our home survived. My family's home survived. So many of my colleagues and friends' homes did not survive. Half of my high school did not survive. And we've reflected on that on the podcast. You can go back into the archives and see the episodes with the chief medical officer of Santa Rosa Memorial Hospital, Chad Krillich, and the president of Providence St. Joseph Health, Todd Salness, Uh, In October of 2017, we reflected on the disaster, and we're in this place again, uh, almost exactly two years to the day. Just before this all started, I was fortunate to go to Oregon Health and Science University to give a grand rounds on disaster management, and now we are once again in the midst of another disaster. It's stressful and it's scary. We are currently evacuated. We're not in my home. Uh, I'm at a friend's house in the east part of the Bay Area. I'm happy to say that my whole family and my friends are all okay, and we're all displaced, and it's really difficult. There are mandatory evacuation orders that cover the bulk of Santa Rosa, and we are working through all of that. Lots of people have reached out to ask, Mark, how are you feeling? What is this like? And I would say that the two words that leap to mind is that I am feeling very sad. I am also feeling very resolute. And that juxtaposition comes to my mind, and I actually learned that from an extraordinary physician and leader named Megan Ranney, who is one of the most important voices we have on gun violence in the United States. And she talks about feeling sad and owning that, but also knowing that resolution to make it better, to get through what needs to be gotten through 
is also important. And that's the place that I'm in right now. We're also in a strange space where this is not over. We are going to have extreme wind conditions again starting tomorrow, which will be October 29th. Uh, I am going to be working tomorrow at Santa Rosa Memorial Hospital seeing patients, and we will get through that as well. The fire is not controlled yet, and we will press on. It's uh, <laughs> it's hard to find the right words, and, and this segment is just like the rest of all my episodes. This is not scripted. This is just sort of how I'm feeling right now. There is one story I'll share on the morning that the fire really erupted and there had been, we'd all been awake all night long getting pings from Nixel and getting emergency messages and most of Santa Rosa and huge parts of the North Bay were under mandatory evacuation orders, displacing almost 200,000 people. The donut store near my hospital was open and as I was heading back into the hospital, I thought, I'm going to go get a whole bunch of donuts and I was wearing a jacket that has the logo of my hospital on it and it has my name. And one of the people in line says, do you work at Santa Rosa Memorial? I said, I do. And she said, are you guys, are you open? Are you there? I said, yep, we are open. We are there for you if you need us. And her face just changed. And I felt a sense of pride that, man, I don't know. (laughs) It was a special feeling to know that my institution, my organization, and my teammates across every service line are there holding the line. And we're still open. Santa Rosa Memorial is open and ready to work. That can always change, of course, and the leadership team there is extraordinary. They're smart. They take safety as a priority, and if things need to change, they will, but otherwise, we are operational. Another story I'll share, and this is one that's difficult, is I have a young son. He's three, almost three and a half. This is the second time he's been displaced by an emergency where we've had to evacuate, and it's informing his childhood and some of the terms that he now knows and the phrases that he understands and the circumstances that he is so brave and resilient about, I, I marvel at. But it's really sad. And it's hard to wrap my mind around what that is like. But I'm also so proud of him and my entire family because they're all incredibly brave. And I'm incredibly proud of all of my friends. And I'm incredibly proud of my entire region because Santa Rosa and Sonoma County and the whole North Bay, it's one of the most incredible corners of the world you could ever hope to be a part of, both because of the natural beauty and the food and the wine, but also the character of the people. We take a lot of pride in where we live and we want it to be great and we want it to be welcoming. And that's part of what makes this so difficult. So here we are, we're going to have this conversation with Catherine Hayhoe. I do, before we go forward, I do want to say thank you specifically to the extraordinary men and women who work for CAL FIRE, who work for the Santa Rosa Fire Department, who work for all of our local fire departments, and all of those who support those men and women so that they can go forward and do their jobs. They work hard. (laughs) The videos are everywhere. You can see them. You can see the conditions in which they work. And I'm sure you can understand the conditions that the friends and family that they have to say goodbye to so they can go and do that work, what it's like for them. And I know what that feels like. So to all of them who are holding the line tonight, I am grateful. All of us are grateful and we appreciate it. There are a number of people doing tremendous work on social media to make sure that news is passed accurately and comprehensively. Lizzie Johnson is an amazing reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. And I will say that the entire San Francisco Chronicle team has been incredible. And I've been following all of them on Twitter and trying to amplify them. Lizzie has actually also been on the podcast in the past. She came on at the one-year anniversary of the Tubbs fire, so it was actually almost exactly a year ago to the day. 
I would recommend following all of them. Definitely be sure you are using Nixle. It doesn't matter where you live. You should be signed up for Nixle, N-I-X-L-E. You just have to give your uh, zip code and by texting it to 888-777 and you will automatically get emergency alerts. Another Twitter feed that I found recently is from Sarah Sturch. She is at at S-A-R-A-H underscore S-T-I-E-R-C-H. She has been doing amazing work. She's in Sonoma. One of the things that she shared with me today that I want to make sure I get out there, if you are interested in contributing any sort of financial resources to support uh, fire relief in Sonoma County, you can go to www.norcalfiredonationlist.com. That's the one that she suggested right now. There's a lot of places that you can look when you scroll on. When you go to that website, you can see all of the different places where you can then donate. It's a very diverse selection. You can do your own research and you can decide where you would like to route your funds. Obviously, any and all support is appreciated. We're in a tough space tonight. The next 36 hours are going to be very difficult. I have friends who lost their homes. I have colleagues who lost their homes in the Tubbs fire who had just rebuilt, and they are now evacuated from those homes. I've had conversations with some of them. I can't even begin to express what it must feel like for them, but I can see the looks on their faces, and we're standing with them tonight, and we're standing with them tomorrow. Just like we're standing with our whole community, and I appreciate all of you listening to me take a few minutes to express where I am with everything. I will try to circle back later this week to put up another episode after I have some time to be in the hospital seeing patients and reconnecting. But in the meantime, let's get to episode 156 with Catherine Hayhoe. She's incredible, and she sounds a call to action. And that's the most important thing. The, the way that she sounds that call to action, though, for me is really important and inspiring. It's around talking about this, and that's why this introduction is important for me. I thought about whether I should do this or not, but I need to share this. I do want to express how I'm feeling. We need to be able to talk about this. We need to be able to talk about the way climate change is affecting our planet. It's affecting our communities. It's not pending. It is here and it is happening. And that's the place that we're in. And we have the power to make it better. And we have to leverage that power. That time is now. There's no more time to wait. She does lay this out brilliantly. And it was a real honor to have her on. The episode was obviously delayed because I had power outages. And now they say timing is everything. Now we get to put up an episode with an expert at a really important time. And I'll also just finally ask you to take a look at the picture of her on the website, www.explorethespaceshow.com. It's a picture that she sent me to use. And the picture is her giving a talk. And in the background, the banner says hope. And that's the place that we're in right now. The quote that I pulled, I always like to pull a quote from an episode, is where she says, the number one question I've gotten over the past few years is what gives you hope? And we need that right now. We need that in the region for sure. And I appreciate that there are people of wisdom and weight who recognize that and are working from that place because that's how we're going to move this forward. One thing that's giving me hope is seeing all my friends and colleagues in Santa Rosa who are physicians, healthcare providers, and our healthcare professionals. And that's everybody from the doctors, the nurses, the environmental services team, the nutrition team, the engineering team, the finance team, the staffing teams, everybody, the way they're able to do this work. Santa Rosa Memorial Hospital is a tough and resilient place, man. And the medical group that I'm a part of, Providence St. Joseph Healthcare of Sonoma County, we have offices open today. We are seeing patients today in our primary care 
in Santa Rosa, in Rohnert Park, and in Petaluma. You can go to the website for Providence St. Joseph Healthcare of Sonoma County if you need help. We are there. And I'm proud to say that, and being able to say that gives me a lot of hope. You can find me anytime on social media at ETS Show. I'm on Instagram at Explore the Space Show. You can email me, Mark at ExploreTheSpaceShow.com. Explore the Space is available on all of your favorite platforms. Where you like to download podcasts, please do leave us a rating and review. Please do look through the archive. There's great content on climate change with some real experts. We had Michael Mann in episode 152. We had David Wallace-Wells in episode 128. The wonderful Jamie Margolin from Zero Hour in episode 132. And there's so many more. So please take a look through the archive and please take this on board. I appreciate you listening to this introduction. We will see you in a couple of days and we will stay strong and we will hold the line. Without further ado, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. Catherine, welcome to Explore the Space. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I remember how and when I found you and your work. It was about six months ago. Um, when I was getting really active on Twitter and really started to pivot into trying to learn more, get really engaged and start to find conversations around climate change and climate science. And I found your Twitter feed very, very quickly. And I remember I pinged you that same day. So we've been circling this date for almost half of 2019. I'm delighted that you're finally here. Likewise. Let's get started with something that I found on, not on your Twitter feed, but on your website, because I think this is going to be a nice springboard for us to get into some of what you do. Your, obviously, your grip of the concept, the challenges, the opportunities, and the connectivity that comes with talking about climate science, you're at the apex of that. And so I do want to explore a little bit of that, but I do want to start from the place of how finding fuel for people to do what you advocate for us to do, which is to talk about climate change. I think there's a quote from you in one of your, in one of your talks from earlier this year, which is something, and I'm paraphrasing, you'll correct me. The most effective thing we can do to combat climate change is to talk about it. Yes. And in fact, I have an entire Ted talk all about that. Yeah. But talking often seems scary because if we change a light bulb, if we recycle, if we, um, go without meat, that's a choice that we can make individually ourselves without talking to anybody about it often. Whereas talking requires engaging with somebody else. And it's very, can be very scary to do that because first of all, we're not sure if people agree with us on what is now the most politically polarized topic in the entire United States, climate change. Um, And second of all, too, it's scary and it can be really depressing to talk about something that we're afraid of. And so we tend to kind of sheer away from these conversations, which means, unfortunately, that we are not having conversations about the most important issue of our time. There's public opinion polling that uh, the Yale Program on Climate Communication does, and they ask people all kinds of questions like, do you think you know the planet is warming? And most people say yes. Do you think it will affect plants and animals and future generations and people in poor countries? And most people say yes. And then they say, do you think it will affect you personally? And most people say no. And then you say, Do you think or do you ever hear anybody talk about this? And everybody says no. The only two places where more than 50 percent of people talk about it are a little, little tiny circle around San Francisco that does not include Santa Rosa. Right. And a little tiny circle around Seattle. And that's it. I think that what you just described as an armchair psychologist, that's the textbook definition of cognitive dissonance. Yeah, it pretty much is. And that is.
is a term that we definitely use. So but people might say, well, but talking about it doesn't seem very effective. Shouldn't we be doing more? Here's the connection, though. If we don't talk about something, why would we care about it? How would we understand how it affects us in the places where we live? And we definitely want to talk about how it affects us in California. And why would we think it's even possible to fix it if we don't know anything about the amazing solutions that are happening every day? So you've used a couple of terms that I just want to pull out and put under the spotlight a little bit. You talked about that the idea of discussing this, people have some fear around it. And I think you did use the word tension around it. There's also the piece where nothing is going to happen better, faster, more effectively than if we do talk about it. There's something in the middle there that's causing us to stop. And I would submit that that's, you know, multiple generations of counter counter information that's driven sort of an illusory truth effect around this. You're not in that place. You do talk about this. You mm-hmm. are comfortable talking about it. You are approachable. You are engaging. You are not adversarial. That's a skill set. And I wonder what are the underpinnings of that skill set asking from the place of how do we generalize those tools that you so clearly have a mastery of? Well, I live in the place where if you can talk about climate change in West Texas, you can pretty much talk about <laughs> it anywhere. So, so what I'm about to tell you, people might say, well, this isn't going to work with the people I know. Trust me. <laughs> I live somewhere where all of those people live. So you put um, yourself right in the middle of the tension and got after it. Exactly. I live in the perfect place to have those tough conversations. And now I'm not saying, first of all, two caveats. Number one, I'm not saying you have to have this conversation all the time. When you're at the grocery store and somebody says, how's it going? You don't have to reply, horrible. Have you heard about climate change lately? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that permission. My goodness. (laughs) Right. And and when you're really tired and you just want to get home and somebody sitting beside you on the bus or somewhere says, you know, what do you do? You, you know, not every day do you want to say I'm a climate scientist. Some days I'm like, I work at the university. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Let's yeah. just get where we're going. Yeah, totally. um, so so that, that's caveat number one. Don't feel like you have to be like have the enthusiasm of an evangelist to talk to every single person you know. <laughs> um, and then caveat number two is this one. This one's very serious. We normally think of people as for of like, yes or no on this issue, you know, believers or deniers. But when you look at where we are, we're actually spread across a spectrum where about 20% of us are alarmed, about 25 or 26% are concerned, and then about the same amount are cautious. And so the greatest number of us are either alarmed, concerned, or cautious. And then we have people who are disengaged and doubtful. And then we have 9% of the U.S. population currently is dismissive. Now, dismissive people are people who will dismiss anything and everything you give them. You could give them a pile of scientific reports up to the ceiling and they would dismiss it. Um, An angel from God could appear before them with brand new tablets of stone saying global warming is real and they would dismiss the angel. They are people to whom rejecting the science of climate change is a conscious part of their identity. They are the ones who always bring it up at every family dinner, who comment online, who might even be trolling people in the comment section or on social media. Um, You know who we're talking about. We're talking about Uncle Joe. We're talking about your old college roommate. Dismissives cannot be argued with, and it is almost impossible to have a positive, constructive conversation with them. But that said, they're only 9% of the population. So that means that with 91%, we can have a constructive conversation if we begin the conversation with what we agree on rather than what we disagree on. 
And this is really key because all too often when we want to jump into a conversation, it's because we've heard something that somebody said that we disagree on and we want to tell them where they're wrong. That is not the time to begin a constructive conversation. The time to begin is when we are agreeing about something, whether it's how devastating the wildfires have been, how worried we were that our power is being cut off, wondering what the ski season is going to look like this year, if it's going to be another warm winter, talking about um, the air quality and our health, talking about um, some really interesting solutions to climate change. Hey, so-and-so got a plug-in car. They're looking at solar panels. How does that work out? So having conversations starting where we agree on, that's where we can start to move forward. We can connect the dots to why climate change matters to whatever it is that we're talking about. And then we have to talk about solutions because if we talk about a problem without solutions, we're just leaving each other depressed, um, disenfranchised, feeling the very opposite of empowered, feeling kind of hopeless and despairing that we've talked about a problem, but there's nothing we can do to fix it. That central dogma that you just teased out really resonates with me. I want to start with the first piece that you were discussing, this idea of the 9% of this issue who are dismissives. I'm curious uh-huh. though, can we apply that same structure to a whole variety of other issues? Because as you were describing that, I saw gun control, I saw vaccine science, I saw climate change all pop up on my mental screen at the exact same time. Is that, is it, is it, can we extrapolate that into other issues where when you see polling, you see that there is a lot more consensus, agreement, opportunities for conciliation than we may perceive if you just look at Twitter? Yes, I completely agree that we can do that. But why we aren't seeing that is, I think, a couple of reasons. First of all, the media's um, marketing strategy is to sow dissent. We we click on stuff when it's something that we disagree on. And and I'm talking all across the spectrum. I'm not pointing my finger at any specific outlet because they all do it. They all do it. Yeah, so we're just bombarded with disagreement and polarization all the time. And then on social media, it's really hard to have constructive conversations on social media. It's one thing when we're looking into each other's faces, recognizing the other person as a human being the same as us. But when we're on social media, it is frighteningly easy to start treating other human beings as if they are subhuman, as if they're undeserving of respect, as if we would never listen to anything they say. And so Sometimes, not just with dismissive people, but sometimes with people a little bit further further in, it's still hard to have those constructive conversations when we're not looking at each other eye to eye. What I hear then is it's really important when we're thinking about this idea of constructive conversation, and I've heard you use that term now half a dozen times just in the last couple of minutes, a constructive uh-huh. conversation, we're fooling ourselves if we think we're doing it on social media. Yes. I mean, I'm very active on social media and people say, well, aren't you there to convince the dismissives or the deniers? And I say, no, I'm not there to convince them. I'm on social media primarily to give people who are alarmed and concerned and even people who are cautious the information that they need to understand why this matters to us, how it connects to the things that we already hold dear, and what are some positive, hopeful, encouraging solutions that are already happening today that we could be aware of, that we could spread the good news on, that we could even engage with ourselves. Because the number one question that I've gotten over the last few years is what gives you hope? And that's what we're all looking for right now. I saw that on your Twitter feed yesterday. Mm -hmm. I try to post about hope as frequently as I can. Yeah, yeah. So just to kind of take us back, because as I listen to you speak, you're one of these experts who 
does something that I really appreciate. You speak like you write and you write like you speak. There's consistency there. So for me, that's expertise, right? That's someone who is, we never are masters of something, but you're someone that's approaching levels of mastery because you've been at this for a while. You're good at it. You've had good mentors. You're curious, but you're really, really good at this constructive conversation piece, this communication piece. What would you say are maybe two or three of the skills that you focused on to develop this level of mastery, maybe starting five, 10, 15, even, even longer in your, in your development? Well, I think it all did start, the communication aspect started when we moved to Texas, and that was about 13 or 14 years ago. Okay. Um, but before that, I think it's important to really understand what you study. So taking it back pretty far, um, I am an atmospheric scientist. I study what climate change means to us in the places where we live. I grew up in Canada and in South America, and then I went to the U.S. for graduate school you know, at the University of Illinois. Now, until I moved to the U.S., I had never met anyone who thought that climate change wasn't real. I mean, to me, it was, you know, the grass is green, the sky is blue, and climate is changing due to human activities. That's just kind of the level of facts it is. So moving to the States, I was sort of vaguely aware that there were people out there who didn't really agree with the science. But I was so unaware that it was really endemic in our society that uh, my husband, who I met at graduate school there, who was doing his PhD in linguistics, my husband and I had been married for six months before the penny dropped that we were on the opposite sides of the fence from each other on this issue. Wow. So that was a huge shock, obviously, to both of us, because he had never met someone who shared his faith. We're both Christians who believed that you know climate was changing and humans were responsible, and I had never met anybody, let alone somebody you know, with a PhD and an endowed chair at Notre Dame at age 27. I had never met anybody like that who thought that it wasn't. So we started off from a really important place, and that is a place of mutual respect. We both not only loved each other, but we respected each other, and we knew that we were thoughtful people who would often have good reasons for our opinions. And so we decided to walk together through the basics. And here's the interesting thing. I was, you know, doing, at that time I finished my master's and I was doing research, I knew the cutting edge of the research, but I had never really walked through the basics of how do we know it isn't just a natural cycle or the sun that's causing our current warming? And what do the impacts really mean to us in the place where we live? Not just the polar bears or people in low-lying islands in the South Pacific, but here where we are. So we were able to walk through that together. And I think that's where my own journey began because the lessons I learned then were understand the foundation you stand on so that you can give a good account of yourself to anybody who questions what you know is true, but also have these conversations with respect. And if it's not possible to respect the person you're talking to, I don't think that we're the right person to be having that conversation. And if the person that we're talking to will not respect us in turn, and usually I try to give people, you know, one or two chances, and even sometimes I actually say to them, hey, I'm a fellow human. Are you able to treat me as a fellow human being? And if they're not able to do that, then that's not going to be a conversation that goes anywhere either. But going all the way back to that, I think, was my very beginning. And then moving to Texas was when we started to put it into practice. So mutual respect is really important. Um, Understanding the foundation that we stand on. You don't have to be a scientist, but just understanding, hey, this is why we know that Climate is changing. Humans are responsible. Here are the impacts on us where we live in California. And then not being an expert in solutions either. I'm certainly not. But knowing a couple of things that, hey, there here are these resources like Project Drawdown that explain that there's a bunch of different solutions to climate change. Some of them are really cool. Did you know that food waste 
if it were its own country, it would be the third biggest source of heat trapping gas emissions after China and the U.S. And we can all do our part to reduce food waste. Just knowing little things like that makes a huge difference. So there's a there's a gap from my perspective that exists in how we communicate and, and getting to high quality communication. And as I'm listening to you, you're, you're, whether you mean to do it or not, you are opening doors onto other levels of skill and expertise that you have. That is really high level communication strategy, independent of whether what the topic is, the topic doesn't matter. What, yeah. Like th- that, that infrastructure that you just provided us, I'll take that to work today. Thank you very much. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I think it really does help. And I've, I've sort of feel like I've, I've honed it in the crucible of fire, so to speak, yeah. because again, climate change is currently the most contentious issue in the U.S. We're the number one predictor of whether we agree with simple facts that date back to the 1850s is where we fall in the political spectrum. But climate change is not the only issue. As you said, gun control, immigration, um, uh, vaccinations, uh, foreign policy, all of these are hot topic issues that there's a lot of political polarization, a lot of misinformation on. And in reality, a lot of people would really like to agree. We just don't feel like we have the tools to do so. Yeah. I read mm-hmm. a quote recently that I liked, and I think it informs where I think you and I should go and spend a little bit of time together. And it's the idea that climate change, recognizing all of what you just said is true, that it is extraordinarily contentious. But I also think with the statement that I read that I agree with is that I do think that climate change transcends an issue that climate change is actually an era. It's not an Mm. issue. It's an era Mm -hmm. and that's different. And what cemented that for me is a quote that's actually on your website in your bio from a professor named John Holdren, who said, we basically have three choices, mitigation, adaptation, and suffering. We are going to do some of each. The question is, what is the mix going to be? For me, that is something that defines generational work and generational impact. Yes. And I think the best description of climate change that I've ever heard uh, comes from the U.S. military. Uh They call it a threat multiplier. Threat multiplier. Yeah. Yes. And so people often say, well, the problem we have is that people don't care enough about climate change. You know, for many people, it might be number 12 or 15 or 25 on their list. We need to push it up so it's like number three or number two on their list. And I actually disagree with that. And this is exactly what what you just said. I don't think that climate change should be on our priority list at all, because the only reason we care about it is because it affects everything else that's already at the top of what we care about today. Yeah. That's a really, really astute point. So doing that, recognizing that when we talk about something of this scope and scale, which I don't have any experience with, this is a first for me, I'm 43 years old, you know, we've been talking about climate change my whole life, but we haven't been talking about, you know, the sort of threat multiplier aspect of it. Although that's not, perhaps that's not true because I did grow up when we were doing, you know, nuclear Mm. drills in school and things like that. But Mm. the, the point remains that we can, we, we need to recognize that it's there. It's scary. And we do need to step into that tension. So I want to do that in something that you're really good at and is important to obviously this show with me being a physician, the ways that you said climate change affects everything. We take that on Mm -hmm. board. Let's hone in on the ways that climate change will impact human health. 
Because we all want to be healthy. We want to live long lives. We know what the median life expectancy in the United States is. We want to not just live lives. We want to live lives of fulfillment and energy and engagement and, you know, high cognitive function and good physical prowess at the things that we love to do. We want to be able to do all of these things. There's this threat multiplier out there that will materially impact all of those. Can you walk us through what some of those pieces are? Yes. There are at least eight different ways that climate change will affect our health. Yes, I know. And uh, I have this this little YouTube series called Global Weirding. Oh, shoot. Just a second. There you go. I have this little global, I have this little YouTube series called Global Weirding. And they are short episodes like and each episode addresses a different question. And so one of them talks about, you know, is CO2 a pollutant or not? And that one kind of goes through all of these different health impacts. So if, if people are looking for a summary afterwards, the global weirding episode on is CO2 a pollutant goes through these. So here, here we go. Eight, eight things. So the most obvious one that everybody thinks about when you say climate change and impacts on health is heat, right? I mean, you know, global warming is getting hotter and heat is a definite impact um, we are seeing that our heat waves are getting more intense in the summer and they're getting stronger and they have a serious impact on our health, especially if we work outside or if we cannot afford air conditioning. So extreme heat disproportionately affects people who are poor. I worked in the city of Chicago and their emergency dis- uh I worked with the city of Chicago and their emergency response department actually staffs by the thermometer because when it gets really warm, especially at night, those are when we see the biggest impacts on health. People are afraid to open their windows because they don't live in neighborhoods that they consider to be safe. They can't afford to pay their air conditioning bill. And when it gets warm, our our temperatures and our tempers even flare. And so we become more irritable. We become more aggressive. And they've actually tracked violence with temperature, and it goes up. Heat waves themselves can be devastating. I mean, the 2003 heat wave that happened in Europe was responsible, when all the dust cleared, for 70,000 deaths that would not have otherwise occurred. 70, like seven zero. Yes. So no wonder over in Europe, they view climate change as a threat on, you know, on par with terrorism, because, you know, the number of deaths during 9-11 was less than 4,000. And those deaths are important. I'm not trying to minimize them at all. But when you look at magnitude of impact on human life, heat already carries a huge toll. Uh, We've got seven more to go. And I'm, I am stunned. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And, and, and the first one is actually, in, in my opinion, perhaps the least important of them. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Let's kick yeah, it up. We're yeah. okay. We, can, we, we have to do this, right? We, we owe it to one another that we can be equipped to then know these things, take them on board, and then talk about them. That's the definition of stepping into the tension. So number two. It is. And you are the perfect person to be doing this. All right. Number two is something we might not directly connect with heat, and that is air quality. So the hotter it is, the faster the reactions happen that turn pollutants into ozone, which is a very dangerous thing for us to breathe. And we already know that when there's high ozone levels, we're told, you know, not to go jogging outside or spend too much time outside. Well, around the world, air pollution kills 9 million people a year. 9 million people, including 200,000 in the United States every year. 
I mean, is that not mind blowing? So you might say, well, yes. imagine, imagine if, you know, Ebola were killing 200,000 people in the U.S. every year. Right. I mean, the CDC would have virtually unlimited mandate and funding to, you know, figure out how to fix this thing or at least give us all a vaccine. Right. So, so why do we, why are we somehow okay with this? Well, part of it is because it's been with us for so long. Air pollution dates back to the Middle Ages. I mean, the very first air pollution legislation in England was in the 1300s when King Edward forbade them for burning sea coal in the city, only when the queen was in residence, when the queen was not there. <laughs> you go you know. do what you want. Exactly. Great. So part of it is it's been with us for so long, we just sort of take it for granted. But part of it is the fact that the people who are most affected by air pollution are people who cannot afford to live in a place with cleaner air. They cannot afford a car, so they are always on the streets taking public transit to work, being exposed to higher levels of air pollution. If they can't afford a place to live, it might be next to a major freeway or in a very polluted area. So it's the people who do not have a voice, the poor and the underprivileged, who are disproportionately affected by air pollution. You've now said that twice in both categories. I think it's important that we recognize that, that we know that there are growing wealth disparities around the world too, that we have a couple of things here that, again, to, to borrow the term from the U.S. military, that are threat multipliers because those populations continue to grow. That's a huge problem. It is. And in fact, a new study by colleagues at Stanford that just came out this past May, they showed that climate change has already increased the wealth gap between the wealthiest and the poorest countries in the world, in some cases by as much as 25% of their GDP. Wow. Already. Oh my gosh. Yeah. All right. Still stunned. Number three. <laughs> okay. Number three is the impact of climate change on our food. So now you're talking you know, to someone who lives in Sonoma County. So like everyone's ears are perking up right now for sure. Yes, absolutely. Um, a study that I did back over 10 years ago now in California, we actually looked at the impact on wine grape quality in California. That was, head, that. that was headline news yesterday, actually. <laughs> yes, there you go. So there are definite impacts on our specialty crops like citrus and avocados and coffee, chocolate, wine. But where the rubber really hits the road is this impact on the basic staples of life, again, yeah. to those people who spend the greater proportion of their income on those basic needs. So as climate changes, we are seeing that droughts are getting stronger. We are seeing that heavy rainfall and flood is increasing. We are seeing that the natural cycles of wet and dry, especially in places like Southeast Asia and Africa, where people really depend on these natural cycles, these natural cycles are becoming messed up where it rains and rains and rains and rains, and then it's just hot and dry with absolutely no rain. And so first the flood fields are flooded, and then there's no rain to help the crops grow. Since 1980, and this was research that was also done at Stanford, since 1980, we have averaged $5 billion worth of crop losses per year. And the majority of those crop losses are happening in countries, again, where people live off, you know, one or two dollars a day and they don't have crop insurance. Number four. Holy cow. Well, actually, um, there's 3B, too. Oh, of course. <laughs> so, All right. No, no, that's okay. 3B is the fact that when there's more carbon dioxide in the air, and of course, that's the main heat trapping gas that we produce by digging up and burning coal and gas and oil. When there's more carbon dioxide in the air, plants grow faster. So people say, oh, well, it's okay because plants are growing faster, so we'll just get more food that way. When they grow faster, their nutritional density decreases because they have the same amount of nutrients, but it's distributed through a bigger plant now. 
So the nutritional content of our food is decreasing as CO2 goes up. That and again, if, if we can afford, you know, vitamin supplements or we can afford higher quality food, big deal. But if we can't, in places where they're already nutritionally challenged, they have access to even less nutrition than they do today. So are we going to start to see the reemergence of nutritional deficiencies that we don't see all that often now? Um, especially in places, again, where people cannot afford to supplement their diets, that is a possibility. Wow. Yeah. That cycle that you described, though, too, about the heavy rainfall, more vegetation grows, then it gets hot and that vegetation dries. I know we're in categories, we're in, we're in food category right now, but that cycle I know is, is a driver of wildfires too, because you generate more fuel, you dry that fuel out and then that fuel ignites. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's what we see happening in California too. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. All right. We're ready to continue okay. to move forward. Number four. Number four is water pollution. So one of the most obvious and visible impacts of a changing climate, a warmer world, is an increase in heavy precipitation because warmer air holds more water vapor and a lot more water evaporates when it's warmer. So when a storm comes along today, there's more water vapor for it to sweep up and dump on us than there was 50 or 100 years ago. And when rain falls in more intense bursts, it tends to run off, collect all the pollution along the way, and then end up in our water bodies, which we depend on for water. Currently, water pollution already kills almost 2 million people per year. Most of those are under the age of five in poor and developing countries where they can't afford to treat their water. And so we do expect water pollution to increase. In fact, it probably already is as a result of a changing climate. And it isn't only happening in those countries. It's happening in places here with our fresh water supplies, um, with runoff from, for example, all the flooding they had in the Midwest last spring. Yeah. With the fact that as sea levels rising, it's intruding into some freshwater aquifers. So we don't we have contaminated water. We have to treat and process it. We have to desalinate it. So there's a lot of issues related to our water that are happening all around a changing climate. And as you know, even more than I do, we need water. It is the basic a basic human need on this planet. That is a, correct. And. <laughs> uh, as you're talking, and I want to keep moving, obviously, I'm, I'm still trying to apply that model that Dr. Holdren suggests, right? Mitigation, adaptation, and suffering. Each one of these, we've done four, I guess, five categories because of 3B. The, the opportunities and the threats are all very, very real. So let's keep moving because I want to continue to do that work. Mm -hmm. as, as you're talking, I'm kind of laying in those buckets, mitigation, adaptation, suffering. Exactly. So a lot of these impacts are related to adaptation. So preparing for and knowing what's coming. Yeah. But the mitigation comes in where we're saying, okay, well, how can we get our energy in different ways? How can we manage our land in different ways? Because that's a quarter of the problem, land use and agriculture, such that we're not making this problem even worse. Because in some cases, we can adapt to what we have right now, and we can adapt to a little bit more. But if it gets really bad, the wheels are going to fall off the bus. We just can't adapt to the biggest changes that might happen if we don't mitigate. So again, it's not saying, okay, well, we'll just adapt to whatever happens. At some point it breaks. So recognizing that piece that you just said, and I'll be honest, I was a little bit nervous that at some point in the conversation, one of our world's most renowned climate scientists, you might use a statement like that. That's frankly frightening. And so we've got three mm -hmm. more subjects to move through. Let's do that because yes. <laughs> we're not just informing people. I'm, my hope is that we are equipping people with a sense of 
pragmatic concern that this has to be different, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't exactly. have to be different. It actually doesn't. It doesn't have to be different. There will be a consequence, though. Yes, yes. And again, I hope what people are realizing as we talk through this is to care about climate change, you don't have to be an environmentalist, a green voter, a tree hugger, a you know typical Californian. All you have to be is a human because every single human, we care about our health. That's right. We care about us. We care about our family. We care about our kids. We care about our community. Our health is the most basic thing that is most important to us. And we know that you could have all the money in the world. You could have all of the you know good fortune in the world, but if you do not have your health, you have nothing. That's right. And I like that in this process that we're doing that the word suffering is there because one of the universal calls of those who enter healthcare is to reduce suffering. So my hope is that people who are hearing this recognize that aspect and say, just like I'm supposed to step forward and treat pneumonia and heart failure and do population health and provide timely vaccinations and you know, people encourage people to quit smoking. I need to be talking about climate science with everybody because that is part of my credo. I'm, I'm here to help reduce mm-hmm. suffering. Exactly. It is exactly what you're, <laughs> what you're sworn to do. And I, I almost feel, I've actually thought once or twice that we climate scientists should almost, you know, take a, take an, uh, an oath like you do, you know, to do no harm and to prevent suffering because that's really what we're doing. Um, yeah. That's why we're speaking out on this. Yes. Yeah. All right. So moving on, um, number five is is a bit um, slightly more light. Well, I won't say lighthearted, but slightly more more interesting, not so overwhelmingly <laughs> lighthearted. It's, it's giving us a little break. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. It's the intermezzo. Um, yes, uh, and it's not, it's not that it's good news. It's just sort of more of those kind of quirky. Oh, that's really weird <laughs> things. All right. So, so when we're in a room with a bunch of people and there's not really good ventilation, you know, that we breathe in and then we exhale, we exhale CO2. So in a room without good ventilation, the CO2 can build up. And people have been doing studies on this, especially in schools and classrooms where you want our mental faculties to be, you know, top notch. They've been studying the impact of poor ventilation on our ability uh, to our, on the ability of our brain to function. And it turns out that as CO2 levels increase, our brain slowly loses its ability to function, to <laughs> process critical information and Great. to think logically. Yes. And unfortunately, the levels at which our brain starts to kind of, you know, decrease its capacity are levels that may be outdoor levels before the end of the century if we continue on our current pathway. So if we continue what we're doing, then what we're doing will actually make us even stupider than we are today. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that this was much of a break. This is... (laughs) It's one of those things that just makes you shake your head going, oh, my gosh. Oh, my goodness gracious. There's, we can't even go outside. I know. It's just, yeah, that's insane. Okay, so that was number five. All right. Um, but moving, moving on to number six. Moving yeah. on to number six is the fact that the biggest way that climate change affects us in the here and now, each one of us personally, where we live right now, is by loading the natural weather dice against us. So what do I mean by that? Well, wherever we live, we always have a chance of rolling a double six. In California, that double six looks like a drought, a wildfire, incredibly heavy rain and flooding and landslides. Where I live in Texas, it looks like hurricanes and drought and heat wave and flooding. Uh, Wherever we live, we have this natural vulnerability to weather and climate events. 
But as the world warms, it's like climate change is sneaking in decade by decade and taking another one of those numbers on the dice and turning it into a six. And then another six. And then all of a sudden, if you live in the city of Houston, you're like, I've had five 500 year flood events in 10 years. That's no longer a 500 year flood event if you have five of them in 10 years. Right. And in, in California, you're breaking the record for the most area burned by wildfire on it's at almost six month intervals. That's not a normal double six. You're rolling double sevens, double eights, and double nines every six months. Yeah, we're bringing out Dungeons and Dragons dice now. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So, so climate change is loading the dice against us, increasing the area burned by wildfires, prolonging naturally occurring droughts, making them stronger, longer, and more intense than they would have been otherwise, increasing the intensity and frequency of heat waves in the summer, of heavy precipitation, making hurricanes not not more frequent but they're bigger and stronger and slower and they have a lot more rainfall associated with them. And all of these things impact our health. They can impact them directly through the, the impact of smoke inhalation from wildfires, through the impact of um, you know, mold in our home from flooding. Um, they can impact us through Superfund sites being flooded and all of that contaminated water going into poor neighborhoods that live nearby, as happened in Houston. Uh, they can affect us physically. They can lead to the breakdown of public health systems. I mean, imagine what happens here in the U.S. and then think of what happens in a poor country when a massive cyclone or typhoon goes through. There's, there's, it just destroys all the infrastructure. It destroys the water treatment. In Haiti, Hurricane Matthew went through Haiti three years ago before it hit the Carolinas. And in the Carolinas, it was responsible for, I think, um, just short of 30 deaths and um, a number of billions of dollars worth of damage. But in Haiti, they already had cholera. And so that hurricane destroyed tens of thousands of homes. It shattered their already precarious water treatment system. It gave cholera the opportunity it needed to spread through the water system, leading to tens of thousands of deaths. So there's a very real impact on people from these natural disasters that are being supersized or exacerbated by a changing climate to the extent where this summer the United Nations estimated that climate change could set back 50 years worth of poverty and hunger relief development. Number seven. Holy moly. Yes. So number seven ties right into this because number seven is the impact of climate change on our mental health. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, these, these disasters disproportionately affect women and children. They carry the burden, especially in poor countries, of you know, doing everything needed to you know, help the family get that together, recover their resources. And they, these disasters carry a tremendous impact on all of us in terms of our mental health that can go for years in terms of you know, PTSD and um, economic um, impacts that end up dragging us down. But it's not just about disaster. Climate anxiety is a real thing. I mean, I had a colleague who had a student in one of her classes she shared with me just last year where when she mentioned the words climate change, the student would have a panic attack. We just finished a study. We haven't published it yet, but we just finished a study where 1,600 undergraduates at a big university read a book about climate change. And basically, it's a really good book, but it sort of paints climate change as a thing that in order to fix it, we have to change absolutely everything. I mean, it almost sets fixing climate change as an impossible goal because of the magnitude that it says, you know, we need to fix it. So they read this book. They attended a talk by the author. They went to a discussion group led by a faculty member. And we wanted to 
test their opinions on climate change before and then after being exposed to the book, the talk, and the discussion group. We were wondering if it moved them forward in terms of their level of concern about a changing climate. What we found was that among students, a lot of young people are very concerned already. The biggest impact of this was to take people who are already concerned and push them so far off the edge that they fell off it. Wow. They just couldn't handle the overload of the anxiety without what they perceived to be viable solutions. And they just had to. Their their emotional defense mechanism was to just disengage from the issue. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I've ever had a podcast episode where I've said, wow, this many times. I like to think of myself as having a fairly sophisticated vocabulary and a fair amount of mental agility. This is really <laughs> difficult to hear. Uh, it's, what, it's, are the, what are the levels of CO2 in your room right now? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I also am experiencing some countertransference as you're talking about that. We experienced yeah. the Tubbs wildfire in October of 2017. And then the, the power shutoff that we experienced in Santa Rosa was right on top of the second anniversary. It was the same day. We lost power yeah. on October 9th. The fire started late at night on October 8th. So literally yeah. two years to the day, we had this massive power outage. It is driving a lot of that. I see it. I feel it personally. You know, Mm -hmm. we're we're scrambling around buying generators and batteries and things like that. It's really difficult. And so that really resonates. And hearing you say that, in one way, it's validating. But in another way, it's alarming. And it's traumatic, too. Because as you just said, you're feeling the echoes of that very traumatic event. And as I shared with you, my cousins live right where you live. And they lost their home in the Tubbs fire. And the the trauma of at 2 a.m. bundling your kids in their pajamas into the car with nothing, yeah. absolutely nothing, and driving down the street not knowing what's going to happen, and then finding out you've lost everything, and then the potential for having that happen again. Again, yeah. Within I mean, they, they literally, and, and we can't overstate that experience. I'm very fortunate. I didn't have to do that. But people that lived in Fountain Grove and in Journey's End and in other parts of the state that were affected by wildfires, they literally had to drive for their lives. And Mm -hmm. in Paradise, California, a lot of people didn't make it out and a lot of people did die on the road. It's, it's, it's extraordinarily frightening and traumatizing. I feel for them. I I try to Mm -hmm. be empathic, but I didn't have to drive down those roads that were covered in flame. No, no. It's yeah. Um, I'm from Canada and we've had some terrible wildfires there. The Fort McMurray wildfire was the single biggest disaster in the country's history in terms of um, losses. And it's, it's just stunning when you when you think of what's happening right here in the places where we live. Yeah. So yeah. so this brings me to number eight. And number eight is this. The fact that in many parts of the world, there are already a lot of stresses and pressures on their systems, on their health system, their educational system, their public services, their political system. There's many places that are what, what the State Department categorizes as failing states places where there's political instability, where there's already religious conflict, civil conflict, violence, and strife. And in places like that, that are already teetering on the edge due to resource issues, economic issues, uh, religious, political issues, corruption issues, those type of places that are already teetering on the edge, when they are confronted with one of these disasters, which could be the same magnitude of disasters we experienced here, that disaster can be the final straw on the camel's back to push not just a household, not just a city, not just a region, but to push an entire country over the edge. And then the magnitude of the suffering just increases exponentially. So the example that we have already seen of this happening already, not future, past, is Syria. So 
the Syrian issue, the Syrian problems really sort of kicked off um, during the Iraqi war. Because there was a lot of refugees flooding into Syria, looking for jobs, looking for support, looking for land, and the economy could not hold them. Of course, the system was already very corrupt. It was very unstable. There was a lot of desertification happening across the agricultural regions of Syria due to unsustainable agricultural practices for the last 50, 60 years. And then a massive drought hit. Where does climate change come in? We've actually calculated that that drought was two to three times more likely as a result of a changing climate. So it loaded the weather dice against Syria. Now, the interesting thing is a drought of a similar magnitude hit Texas a couple of years later. And Texas is a semi-arid place with a lot of long-term land degradation, think about the Dust Bowl, very similar to Syria. So in Texas, our drought was devastating. It cost between eight to $12 billion worth of damage. Um, they had to truck water into some cities. Um, a number of farmers, you know, they had to sell off all their herds. They couldn't feed their cattle. They lost their crops. But in Syria, you couldn't get water for love or money. You couldn't dig a well because you had to grease somebody's palm to do it and you didn't have any money to do so. So over a million farmers ended up having to abandon their land, move into the city. Unemployment in some places was running over 90%. You could not, again, get water for love or money. It costs more money than gas or anything like that. And on top of the whole system with the uh, political instability, the already pre-existing refugee crisis, the poor land management, you have the extra straw of climate change that pushed the system over the edge, contributing in a very significant way to the refugee crisis. And as you know, during refugee crises, you know, the public health system is gone. People can be dying of things during a refugee crisis that nobody should be dying from in 2019. Having a baby all of a sudden becomes a life-threatening proposition, let alone, you know, getting a scratch and running a fever. So there were, oh, what was the number now in the Syrian refugee crisis? In terms of external refugees, I think it was pushing about 2 million, I believe. But as a result of a changing climate, just from sea level rise alone, we could be looking at the displacement of hundreds of millions of people within the lifetimes of those of us alive today. So I'll take that deep breath. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you frame this in a way that does two things. Number one, it's extraordinarily daunting. The other thing that you do that is so extraordinarily effective is that it's understandable right? There's very little jargon in the way that you do this. And I, compl- I I say that as a compliment. That's one of the ways I think we can all be better. We can't, we, we, we can't sugarcoat. We have to be transparent. If mm-hmm. we know things, we have to share them and we have to share them in a way that's effective. And you're extraordinarily good at that. And as we wrap up, I think it's important that you don't just say it's important that we have these conversations. You go out and do them. You're coming to my region. You're coming here to Northern California Tell us a little bit about where you're going to be, because I think people are very engaged specifically in this region. You're going to be at some major universities. Those are nodes for learning to get this idea of sharing conversation, interaction out there. Where are you going to be? Yes. So on November 5th, which is a Tuesday, I'm going to be giving a lecture at UC Davis at 5 p.m. So Tuesday, November 5 at 5 p.m. at Davis. And then on the 6th, the Wednesday, I'll be at Berkeley and my talk there is at 4 p.m. And then on the 7th, which is the Thursday, I'll be at Stanford, and my talk there is at 3.30 p.m. All of those are open to the public, and for more information, you could just Google my name in the university, or you can go to my Facebook page, which is just my name, Catherine Hayhoe, and I will post those on my Facebook page and on my Twitter account. We will have links to all of those in the show notes. 
I'm going to go ahead and plug your Twitter feed and your website for you, if that's okay. Your Twitter feed is at K Hayho, H-A-Y-H-O-E. Your website is KatherineHayho.com, K-A-T-H-A-R-I-N-E-H-A-Y-H-O-E.com. They are extraordinary. Your Twitter feed is mandatory content. Catherine, this was, <laughs> this was wonderful. It was challenging and difficult. It was what I hoped it would be. And I appreciate you really putting, putting your foot on the gas and giving us what we needed and not, not holding back. Like that's what this exists for so that experts can come in and show us why we need to be listening and why we need to be learning from you. So thank you very, very much. Well, thank you for having me. And I don't want to end this though, without talking at least briefly about solutions Please. because we've talked about the huge problem yeah. and what's most important is not to sort of feel like, you know, we just want to pull the blanket up over our head and wish it would go away though. That's, you know, a good instinctive reaction to have for the first little while. Um, but we need to go out and we need to talk to people about this and talk about what we can do to fix it. So when you go to project drawdown, which you can find online at drawdown.org, it's one of my favorite resources because it has a hundred different solutions to climate change that actually address a lot of the issues of poverty and hunger and lack of access to clean water that we've been talking about being exacerbated by a changing climate. I love the fact that in their top 10 solutions is the education of women and girls, which reduces infant mortality, that food waste is there, that smart agriculture is there, that clean energy is there, because 70% of new energy being installed around the world today is clean energy in places where they don't have power transmission lines, but they can set up a solar panel and they can use it. So solutions really are happening. I mean, United Airlines is flying its flights out of the LA airport on biofuels already. Here in Texas, we have the biggest army base in the U.S., Fort Hood, and it's running off solar and wind energy because that was the cheapest source of energy they got. Um, There's solutions happening all around us, and learning about these solutions and educating ourselves about these solutions and sharing these solutions is so important. So in my TED Talk, the most important thing you can do about climate change is talk about it, I give some examples and models of how we connect the dots between what we care about how it's being affected by a changing climate, and what are some inspiring positive solutions that we can share with each other to give each other hope. And then we also have one of our global weirding episodes called I'm Just One Person, What Can I Do? And then even better, I'm Just One Kid, What Can I Do? And let me tell you, if you're looking for a shot in the arm of hope, the kids are just hitting it out of the park. They're amazing. They are, and I appreciate you bookending this with that material, those links, all of which will be in our show notes. Global Weirding is really good, and I highly recommend it. It's on YouTube, and it's fantastic. Your point around the the, the generations coming up behind you and I being the, the real you know fuel for all of this, the real energy, I totally agree with you. It's incredibly inspiring, and we want to make sure we equip them with all of the right stuff. You're doing that work. I compliment you for it. I'm really grateful to you for taking this time and for coming on Explore the Space. So thank you. Thank you very much. It was great chatting with you too. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.